This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today's episode is sponsored by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Who should go to FEE? Who should check out FEE? Well, anyone who likes ideas should go to FEE.org because there's all kinds of articles, uh, a few of them penned by yours truly from time to time, articles, resources, books, but the real, real life-changing component are the in-person events. And if you're between the ages of 14 and 26, you're curious about the world, you're curious to, to get out and engage with other people who like ideas and want to learn, and you wonder what economics is all about, you want to go beyond just boring charts and graphs and really understand how economic thinking can make you a better entrepreneur, a better creative person, a better person in general, someone who understands and can navigate the world more effectively. Check out fee.org slash seminars, fill out an application, let them know you heard about it here on the podcast. Who should check out Praxis? Again, if you're between the ages of 18 and 25 and you want to get out of the classroom and get into the real world, Praxis gives you the opportunity to spend a year working with entrepreneurs, helping them build their businesses, learning how to be an entrepreneur by working with them in the real world. We destroy this separation between education and work, the real world and the classroom. It's all bullcrap engage the world. You're working. You're also doing a bunch of self-guided. You have coaches and and advisors that are working with you, but they're self-created. You're creating your own goals, challenges, monthly personal development projects. You're building a website, creating an online brand. It is the fastest way to go from where you are now to where you want to be, the kind of life you want to live. Our goal is to help you live free, to help you become fully alive. And we want to give you the skills confidence, experience, knowledge, and network to do that in just one year for a net cost of zero. What you earn during the program covers what you pay. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. Welcome to part four to our four-part series, A Beginner's Guide to Startups. Today, I am really excited to have Evan Baer join us to talk about how to get funded. Evan is the co-founder of Able, an online lender to small businesses. Able launched in June 2014 to serve what they call the Fortune 5 million, the 5.8 million small businesses that represent the backbone of the American economy. Evan's previous startup was Outbox, uh, which was... Such an awesome idea. Uh, unfortunately, governmental bodies sometimes make it hard to do certain things. Outbox was a consumer internet company aiming to take over the U.S. Postal Service. It was backed by Peter Thiel and Mike Maples, well-known venture capitalists. And um, Outbox uh, had a really cool business model that um, <laughs> it was basically to, to scan all your mail and email it to you so you don't need to, didn't need to deal with physical mail anymore. And... Uh, they thought, well, the post office will be fine with this because we're basically making mail more valuable to their customers. And it turns out that the post office's customers are not you, the recipients of mail. They are, in fact, the junk mailers who pay lots of money to ship you junk mail that you don't want. Uh, And this would put them out of business. And the post office didn't like that. Anyway, um, Evan is the co-author of the book Get Backed. 
craft your story, build the perfect pitch deck, launch the venture of your dreams, get backed is all about how to get funding for your startup. And it is a phenomenal book. Um, I had, I bought it first on my Kindle and it was really good on the Kindle, but I would recommend buying the physical copy because it's got so many slides and examples of pitch decks um, and just the color, the formatting, the layout is much easier to go through in the physical version. But this is an excellent, excellent book. If you have a company or are trying to start a company or thinking about one to clarify your thinking and to build a pitch deck that describes your company, even if you're not actively going out to raise money with that deck and you're not sure if you want to, just the process of doing it will help you clarify your vision and what you're doing in your business model so much more. And this is just a really, really good, I am not one on like, you know, turning something like sales into a science. It's, it's, to me, it's like, you got to be really careful there. There's a lot of art involved and, you know, all the ways that you break the rules are often the things that you do best. But this book is not like a rigid rule set. Like this is exactly how you need to, but it's, it's just a really great basic, like what are the elements that need to be included? It's more like a reminder, like, oh, I completely forgot. I forgot to include, you know, uh, the revenue source. And that, that's a big thing, but it's just easy to forget because there's so much involved in an enterprise and in telling the story of your enterprise um, that I highly, highly recommend Get Backed. It, uh, it launched not that long ago. I mean, I don't, I don't remember when the book was published, but it's skyrocketed up to uh, number one in Amazon's um, business new releases. Evan previously worked uh, at Facebook under Sheryl Sandberg, and he worked for Peter Thiel, um, building a political data company. He's a graduate of the Holy Trinity, Princeton, Yale, and Harvard. So really thrilled to uh, have him join us today to talk about how to get funded for your venture. Evan Bear, thank you so much for joining me. I have your book in front of me here, Get Backed. I read it uh, as soon as it came out, and it's really good. <laughs> First, tell me what prompted you to write this book. Well, you have to say it's really good because you have me on the show. Uh, so I know you're <laughs> well, I have you on because it's that. good. It's the cause I All right, all right, all right. Well, yeah, hey, well, thanks for having me on the show and for asking. We really are accidental authors. Uh, my co-author of this book, Evan Loomis, we've been friends for a decade. We've both uh, built companies and raised multiple rounds of financing for those companies. And um, over time, we ended up meeting with friends and friends of friends who were trying to raise capital. So they had a business idea. Maybe they had a pitch deck. Uh, maybe they had raised a little bit of seed capital and they were trying to raise money. And they'd say, love to come pick your brain. And so we'd sit down um, and blast through 45 minutes of front of mind ideas, which is just a really bad way to transfer information. So they're, you know, fastidiously taking notes, but it's frenetic and all over the place. And so we said, gosh, we think we have learned some things in how we raised money. We also have a lot of friends that have raised money. So we said, let's take our experiences and then interview about 75 other founders who've raised capital and take a little time, write it down and make it accessible to more people. And um, that's how the book got started. Hmm. So in your so let's give a little bit of your um your own background when was the first company you started or the first time that you were seeking capital yourself and you were out there trying to raise money yeah so i grew up in a small town in florida to be honest uh the only person in business i knew growing up was uh the local car dealer <laughs> that's what i thought business was and so for me 
Those business. guys are the kings of small towns, by the way. Oh, man. It's just those, those TV commercials where it's like kind of a chubby guy with a shotgun and you like <laughs> shoot in the window and you're like, bro, you just shot your own car. Anyway, so it's that kind of deal. And um, yeah, to me, that was really not attractive. I was like, business, that seems really silly. Uh, and so I went off to college thinking that I was going to be in law or politics because that seemed kind of like the way to make a difference in the world. And then um, my first sort of change in thinking on this was a really strange accidental dinner with Peter Thiel, who at the time I didn't even know who he was. But he is an interesting thinker who uh, famously was a co-founder of PayPal and then seed investor in Facebook. And Peter had an interesting journey himself in that he was on a certain track to uh, – pursue his passion in the form of being a lawyer. And he went to Stanford, went to Stanford Law School. He clerked for Edmondson on the 11th Circuit. And then he got, for the first time, rejected. And that rejection was from a Supreme Court clerkship. And he credits that with the um, moment of saying, gosh, like I need to think about something different. And that was how he got into business. And so he was sort of playing it forward and over this long dinner challenging me and how I thought about gosh, you want to impact the world, he would argue that the precise way to impact the world is to do it in the form of building a business because it aligns different kinds of capital. And so um, that was a jumping off point for me. Let's see. The first venture that I was raising capital for was actually a nonprofit, uh, which is a different type of capital raising. And my first money into that deal was also an accident, uh, which I think is the theme of a lot of founders. I mean, we tried to distill this into some science, but there is a lot of luck and fortune involved in it. And just a quick story of that, I was at a conference and there was a very wealthy individual who liked this idea of this nonprofit we were trying to work on. And he said, well, let's get a few people together and just talk about it. And so he got some other really interesting, smart people together. And we were at this conference and we had a breakfast. And uh, the idea was for me to share what we were working on and get some feedback. And so I'm sharing it. They're all kind of giving feedback. And at the end of the breakfast, this guy says, well, did you get everything you wanted to out of this breakfast? And I didn't quite know <laughs> what he was saying. And I said, well, yeah, you know, thank you for the time. It was so interesting. I really appreciate it. And he says, how about $250,000? And so that was my first money was uh, money I was too you, stupid to even ask for. Yeah, you for. didn't know that you were fundraising. He knew I, that you were fundraising, but you didn't. Yeah, and yeah. that was, you know, he's a great investor and he just knew that I was not smart enough to actually make the ask. And that's something that Evan Loomis, my co-author, makes has a great line about this. He, he came up with a concept for himself, which he calls the prolonged water sip. <laughs> and uh, it's in this moment where you're in a meeting, you know, it's really easy to share what you're working on and uh, talk about something you're passionate about and get people's feedback. And the natural thing that we do, I think all people do at the end of a meeting like that is you want to keep it positive and you don't want to be told no. So you end the meeting by saying, you know, oh, thanks so much for your time. Like if this might be interesting to you later, like let me know, we'll be in touch. Okay. And you're just trying to like get a yes. But when you do that, you totally let them off the hook from actually investing. And so in meetings where you are raising money, it is mission critical that you, you know, get ready for this mind-blowing statement that you ask for money. <laughs> and uh, so Evan's line about this is you actually make the ask. It could be something like, so uh, we are raising capital for this venture. We're trying to get to a million dollars. And uh, we're here today to see if you'd consider a $100,000 investment. So in the statement or in the question, and then here it comes, pick up your glass of water and drink it very slowly. And the idea is it's a forcing function to get you to shut up. Yep. 
and uh, force them to actually make an answer. Yeah, I, I always heard. So I, I did fundraising for a nonprofit for a couple of years and, and heard from several you know seasoned fundraisers that the minute the number comes out of your mouth, you can't be the next one to say anything. You got to mm. let the silence linger. And I, I had a, a similar meeting to the one you described, except I, I wasn't so fortunate. I went to a meeting with this guy and I had done all my homework and I'm in my mind, I had categorized this as a meeting where I'm just getting to know him and getting ready. And we're going to have all these steps before an ask comes because, you know, you're supposed to have like seven steps before an ask and all this stuff. And so this is how I was viewing it. And I'd never met with the guy. So I get there, we meet, we chat, it went really well. And I should have noticed when he came into the meeting room, he stopped by his desk and he grabbed his checkbook and put it in his pocket. And, and he came in the room and we have the meeting. And then um, he kind of, at the end, he's like, okay, well, um, you need anything else? And I said, uh, no, this was great. I'll, I'll follow up with you, uh, you know, next week about this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And it, his hand was kind of going near his pocket where the checkbook was. And then I left the meeting and I never made the ask and I never got another meeting with him again. He stopped returning my calls. So, uh, I missed the, I missed the opportunity there. Um, so in your book in get backed, one of the things that I found really, really interesting, um, and maybe you're not, maybe you wouldn't say it this strongly, but it sounds more fun to say it this way. You basically say the business plan is dead. Um, what do you think, why do you think the business plan as it's sort of commonly taught is like, this is the tool, this is the way that you describe your business uh, and, and potentially pitch it to investors. Why do you think that's dead? And tell us about the pitch deck, which has sort of replaced it. So there's a silly answer and there's a serious answer to this. I think kind of the silly answer is that the format and style of presentations in modern business, they have changed. And so said very simplistically, like we've moved from Microsoft Word to Microsoft PowerPoint or Pages to Keynote. And so uh, the format of how we present information has changed and people like this new kind of more engaging format. So on the one hand, it's like, all right, you'd prefer to write a 15 page business plan. Okay, do that first. And then we're just going to quote, change the format of it to make it work in the pitch deck format, you know, which is 10 to 20 slides seen in a slide deck, uh, usually to aid a oral presentation and explanation of what the business is. So that's the silly answer. The more serious answer, I think, is that the nature of investing in venture-backed early-stage companies is that the criteria for making an investment are different than the empirical hard facts that are presented plainly in a business plan. Mm. So let me say more about that. So in a business plan, you might lay out very detailed information about over the last 12 months, we spent X amount of money on marketing. There was X cost of acquisition. The average revenue per user was X with a margin of Y. And therefore, with new infusion of capital, it would let us you know, increase the margins and increase profit. And it's very plain. It's very straightforward. It's like you're almost going to a bank to be underwritten about what can your business model sustain. Much of the fundraising that we talk about in the book and we see among um, you know, millennial founders – is much less about a proven business model and much more about a big idea and a charismatic founder. And so we really argue that the pitch deck is kind of the condition for the possibility, or let's, let's say it's your ticket for admission 
into a thoughtful conversation with an investor. Um, I was in a round for my own company, Able, about uh, six months ago. And for that round, we pitched 46 investors. And we closed, uh, we ended up having three new institutions in that round. So we closed three out of 46, uh, which actually, sadly, is pretty good hmm. closing rate for investors. Uh, most people think you'll get you know, one out of five or one out of 10. It's often a lot worse than that. And so out of those 46 meetings, I think it was maybe about 10 or 15 that actually in the meeting we used the pitch deck. So most people assume that a pitch deck is what you're going to do and like present and stand up in front of several investors in a boardroom. Um, uh, one quick story on this. I used to believe that and I went to pitch one investor. I had my slides ready. I'd sent the slides ahead of time and I had different dongles for my computer to make sure it connected to the right screen. And I'm escorted into his room. He's a wealthy man in uh, – uh, Colorado, and I'm escorted into kind of his meeting room, and it's this uh, room with um, taxidermy and overstuffed leather couches, <laughs> and not a whiteboard or a chalkboard or a piece of technology to be seen. And uh, I was like, "Oh my gosh, my slides! What am I going to do?" And in that moment, I realized, which has been true even in this last equity round that we did, a lot of these investors are looking to connect with you as a person, and they want to see: Are you good on your feet? Are you good at sales? Can you persuasively communicate the vision of the business? And that is something that's going to come across in the context of a 30 or 60-minute conversation that may have some slides involved. Uh, but that kind of stuff is not going to come across at all in the business plan that you would you know, traditionally create. Hmm. So in the you – know, one of the, I think your book is probably the best I've ever read in terms of once you have the meeting – how to tell your story effectively, what tools and techniques, and there's all kinds of examples of slides and, and things like that. What do you think, and, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about some of that, but what do you think is, if for someone, let's say they've got an idea, they've got a, a you know, a, a founding team, maybe a couple people, and they're, they're ready for the first time, and they don't have a lot of experience in this realm, how do you get the meeting? So those 46 people that you, um, that you reached out to, and you got a lot of no's, but where, where do you even start, let's say, to build a list of who should I reach out to? How should I find them? Is it best to, to send them an email with the deck attached or is it best to introduce yourself first or do you need some natural partner to connect you? How would you go about for the first time finding people that you can even uh, attempt to pitch? Yeah, yeah, great question. And um Shameless plug for the book. We do try to walk through some of the stuff in detail. I'll give a summary version of it right now, but it is something that a lot of people get stuck on and they say something like, well, Evan, you know, if I had your network, I could raise a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's, I think that's a lame excuse. Uh, I will say I got my first PDA in sixth grade and I entered all the mailing addresses of my classmates in that PDA. Uh, I am like insane about trying to remember people and connect with people because I think it's not only helpful for the ventures and things that I'm involved in, but for, for the, gets... for the younger ones, can you tell us uh, what a PDA is? Some people may not Great. remember. Yes. Well, my first PDA, a personal digital assistant, uh, very good. Um, was uh, a Casio. This was my like third PDA was a Palm pilot. So this was pre Palm pilot and it kind of looked like a big calculator, but it had a QWERTY keyboard on it and it could store, I don't know. I think it had like, I don't know, 12K of memory or something, and it maxed out at storing like 100 names in it or something. And so anyway, I was really cool, as you can tell, um, as a young <laughs> kid. And so um, anyway, I think building a network is um, takes time, uh, but it can be done and done thoughtfully and done in an authentic way and not in a way where you're trying to be transactional in 
using people or collecting data on people. So let's just do high level. So you've got a pitch deck and you're trying to raise some money. Um, where are you going to go to ask for money? Um, so let me start with a top-down approach, and then we'll come to a bottom-up approach. Top-down approach says, all right, who out there is investing in the kind of company that I'm trying to build? So uh, the most likely person to write you a check is a person that has written a very similar check recently. So there's two great tools to help you build out that list. Number one is AngelList. And number two is a website called CB Insights, CB for Crunch Base Insights, and you get your first like 50 reports free on it. And what those two websites do is they give you lots of different ways to slice and dice the world of both angel investors, meaning individuals usually investing in their own capacity, checks, you know, ten to hundred thousand dollars, as well as um, venture capital firms or funds, which the lines blur a little bit, but they might come down to you know hundred or two hundred fifty thousand, and then go north of that. So let's say you have a health tech company that's based in Phoenix, that is run by someone that graduated from um, Arizona's business school. Okay, so what I would say is we're going to take those three attributes: graduates of the MBA program of Arizona based in Phoenix, and health tech. And I'm going to search along those three verticals across CB Insights and AngelList. And so you'd look for companies that are founded by people that live in Phoenix. You look for firms that are run by people that live in Phoenix. You look for firms that have invested in companies in Phoenix. Um, then you do that same kind of thing across those other three categories or identity types on AngelList and Crunchbase. That usually will get you to well into the hundreds of potential individuals and firms. And so what's important is to have some kind of criteria. The most relevant ones are, do they invest at your stage of company and do they invest in your type of company? Um, I think the other attributes like, do you share an affinity with members of the firm? Do they invest in companies where you're based um, are less important but can still be great entrees. So that'll give you a really long list. Um, Usually people do this manually, but you can, you know, I have used uh, someone from Odesk or Elance for $5 an hour to go then do a bunch of research on those people. So that gives you your initial list of, say, 500 entities. You could send it off to an intern or someone to then go pull the bios on all of those people, um, pull their LinkedIn URLs. Um, then you're able to rank those people based on who you think are going to be the people that are most likely to write you the check that you're actually looking for. A important piece of advice that Mike Maples, who's on our board, who is the seed investor on Twitter, gives is it's really important. Two, two fun pieces of advice from Mike. Number one is the most important thing that would determine is a fund likely to invest in you if they, is, if they have written a check the size that you're asking for to the industry that you're in in the last year. Hmm. So a common thing that happens is People think, oh, I want to go to Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz or some big firm that's a really famous firm, but you're trying to raise $250,000. And the reality is they just don't write that check. So the takeaway there is don't go to people that don't write that check. So the other piece of that that's important is have they written that check in the last year? And a lot of things people don't think about, common thing that people don't think about is that funds raise their own funds and regularly are between funds. And they won't tell you that because it looks embarrassing, but it means that they actually don't have any money to write to you right now. So only pitch someone that has been writing that check in the last year. And the data on CB Insights will actually show you the dates 
of when that fund has written their most recent checks. Second piece of advice that Mike gives is sort of funny, silly advice, which is, uh, how, so how much money do you ask for is kind of the question um, for a number of reasons. Like, what does a business need? What does that mean for valuation, et cetera? Funny little piece of math that Mike gives is take the fund size. So let's say the fund raised $100 million, and that's usually public information sometimes on their website. So it's a $100 million fund. The amount of money that you ask for is you take the fund size and divide it by 50. And that is because the fund is going to write checks to probably 25 companies. And if they wrote if they wrote you a $2 million check, they're likely to hold an additional $2 million on reserve for you. Hmm. So if they need $2 million for your company, $2 million on reserve, and they have $100 million, that means that you know you multiply the 4 times 25 and you get 100. So that's how much money you ask for is take the fund size and divide it by 50. Um, then the second thing is your valuation is you take that number and you multiply it by five and that's what you ask for. And they may come back and essentially give you that number times four. And that gets to the ownership requirement. So when a VC fund is making an investment, they usually have guidelines that they need to be buying between on the low end, maybe 15 on the high end, 25% of your company in exchange for that investment. So the insane implication of that is if you pitch a $100 million fund, your company is going to be raising $2 million on a $10 million valuation. Hmm. Pitch a billion-dollar fund, you got a $20 million company on a $100 million valuation. Uh, so clearly, when you pitch different funds, and your valuation's not probably multiplying you know, by 10x. <laughs> um, but it gets to this question of it's really important to only pitch qualified uh, people investors. Um, this is a great lesson from sales. You may find really nice people, really interesting people, but if they aren't qualified and likely to actually buy your product, you're probably really wasting your time. And for a lot of founders who are social and extroverts, we feel like it's successful when we have a meeting that, quote, goes well, because we feel <laughs> affirmed in the meeting. But the only thing that matters as a founder is that you raise the money on the best terms for the business as fast as possible. Uh, so let's say you've got the right you've got the right people, the right qualified investors and for your for your business for what you need to raise and you're in the room. Are there and you've got so much more detail in the book clearly, but are there one or two like really common mistakes or things that people get hung up on when they're in that meeting trying to to pitch their their business? People make a lot of mistakes. There's so many. <laughs> My mind is just flooded right now. But let me give you two that, that jump out right away. Number one is most founders are some combination of nervous and arrogant. And the way that plays out in the meeting is in failure to connect with the person. And so Evan Loomis and I really write about and think a lot about how do you build rapport and build trust with that person. If that person, let's say that basically that person is your future father-in-law and you're trying to ingratiate yourself to them to get them to trust you enough that they'd say that you could marry their child. Hmm. Like wear that hat for a minute and think, how do I build rapport? How do I establish trust? How can I seem genuinely interested in this person? And so that can be done, you know, thoughtfully and quickly, even with a little research on the person. So you walk into the meeting and it's, um, oh, um, Mr. Moore, what a honor to meet you. We read your book in business school and that chapter seven and that story about the woman and the peacock, that was just 
really, <laughs> I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. So anyway, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat today. I mean, that was what, 20 seconds or something? And that kind of comment says you're taking the meeting seriously. You know who's there. You're genuinely interested in them. Um, and so that would be one mistake we see happen over and over again. You fail to build rapport with the people that you're having a conversation with. Um, all right. Number two on this is I would say I would call it overconfidence. So the point of the meeting is to have a lot of conversation. And so as you're running through the deck or explaining the business, they will likely ask a lot of questions. And we believe that a main reason they're asking those questions is to come to understand how you think and how you manage uncertainty. Not do you have the definitive answer to all of their questions. So you get grilled on something like, um, well, it seems like you're placing a lot of, you've got a lot of confidence in this direct mail channel, but you guys have very little data back on that. Uh, how do you think about that as proving a really successful growth channel for you guys? So that's the question. So the wrong answer is we have really strong statistical confidence in our mailings to date. Uh, we have a total genius who runs his team, and we just have absolutely no doubt that we're going to dominate this channel. All right, so that sort of says, like, all right, I'm the kamikaze maniac that's going to run this thing into the ground <laughs> despite great data. I think the better answer would be to say, thank you so much for that question. We find it insane that we're running after direct mail. I mean, it's the 21st century, for heaven's sakes. But let me tell you how we got there. So my buddy, uh, co-founder Dave, who's right here, um, he just thought, like, let's try this crazy thing where we write a handwritten note and we send it to this customer that we'd really love. And in that handwritten note, we saw online that he loves this cupcake store. So we actually bought a coupon to the cupcake store that this guy talked about on his blog. And we put a coupon in for the cupcake and we wrote him this note and we mailed it to him. And I think it couldn't have been an hour after the guy got the piece of mail. He picked up the phone and he called us and he's like, I don't even know what you guys do, but I want to work with you guys. And uh, so we had this crazy experience and we were like, all right. Old is old fashioned, but let's just try to do this and take this pretty, you know, homemade approach and, and try to scale it a little bit. So I know the data is really early, but we've got some really fun anecdotal. Yes. Uh, but evidence that leads us to think we can do this channel differently, but we're going to be on top of that. We're going to look at the numbers and we'll be the first ones to cut it if the channel's not going to work. So that answer is to do a few things. I think it's fun. You got to bring an anecdote and story. You're bringing energy into the room. They see that you're being creative. Um, but you're also, I think the key, port, the key point here is that you're taking their concerns seriously and you're showing that you agree with and know that the things that they're worried about are also the things that you are worried about and you're going to focus on. I, I absolutely love that example, especially for the the way that you structured, I mean, the, the point that you were making originally was about being being humble and acknowledging, but the fact that you did it with a story, and that's something that comes up so many times in your book. I mean, really, this is a book about how to tell your story as a business, and that's really the key to raising money. It's 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 telling the story of your enterprise um, rather than just sort of a list of bullet point list of facts. But storytelling does not come naturally to most of us, even though we respond to it so naturally and it's it's all around us, it's a part of the entertainment we consume. But when you think about your venture, it's really hard to, to switch into that storytelling mode. Why do you think that's such a challenge and why is it so important to overcome that? I will speak for myself and maybe can generalize a little bit more to founders, but um, I was not a literature guy. 
you know, I, I don't read novels. Um, I will watch movies, but honestly, I'm not really a movie person. Uh, I think that as analytical driven people, uh, we are probably not the people in, you know, the local storytelling guild, you know, it's just kind of like a social different, you know, storytellers are the humanities majors. They're the poets they're the creative writing people that, you know, write screenplays and stuff. And so I think there's some sort of like, um, social or psychological, uh, divergence there that, that a lot of founders are, um, product driven, they're analytical, they're math oriented, they might be engineers. And usually those people, at least through their training and possibly their disposition, aren't very good at telling stories. Mm-hmm. And I'll say to a lot of people, you know, this idea of, you know, tell a story, like, give me a break. Like, this is business. We're grown ups. We want to present data <laughs> and facts. And I think that there are important times to present analytical cases for the business. Certainly, when you are scaling the business and talking to institutional partners, I mean, this is not certainly a replacement for the data, but in particular for the kinds of ventures that we're talking about on the nonprofit side or the for-profit side, early stage companies, that when you tell a story, you are inviting the listener to become part of that story. Mm. And so it means that if they have 10, 50, 100 challenges or questions that the uncertainties that they have about your business model but they heard your story they were compelled by it and they can see themselves in your story and they want to be a part of it it kind of means that their objections or their concerns about the business itself kind of go away Mm. and so uh, it's very rare to find a case where an early stage business has an absolute slam dunk business case it's very rare So we believe that storytelling is a critical way to invite the audience in, uh, persuade them that your venture is worthy of joining, and just very practically, you're more likely to close them as an investor when you do it well. Yeah, that that story, you know, it really sets the stage because digging into the data, the facts, the business model, that takes work. And someone's got to decide, is it worth it for me to invest the time to dig into all this stuff and to try to see how big these problems are uh, in, you know, with the, the business model or to, to get into the weeds? That's an investment. And so the story has got to be compelling enough to make you say, okay, now I want to actually dig into that. And, and I think the pitch deck is this really beautiful way to wrap some of that key data in a story. So it's not in place of it. It's not like, let me just tell you one story and then, you know, maybe we can look at numbers later. It's, it's kind of wrapping it all up. Um, and you guys do a great job of going really piece by piece of the pitch deck. So I want to take the last 10 minutes here and you have, it's uh, I think chapter two, the building blocks of the pitch deck and you list the 10 essential slides and you have a, a list of like 20 or 30 additional slides that are really valuable and can be used in different ways. But the 10 essential slides, I'm going to, I'm going to list these out and then I'm going to ask you to pick one or two of your favorites to talk a little bit more in depth about. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. So here are the 10 essential um, slides, the building blocks of the pitch deck. Overview, opportunity, problem, solution, traction, customer or market, competition, business model, team, and use of funds. So give me a couple of those that you want to, you want to dive in deeper in and explain a little more in depth what that, what that slide is all about, what it needs to accomplish. Yeah. Um, these might be some unorthodox ones. Let me take the use of funds one. That's kind of a, 
interesting one to dive into. And then maybe the uh, – This is like Jeopardy. Business model. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like it. Uh, all, right. all right. So here we go. So use of funds. So you're in a round. You're in a pitch meeting uh, raising your Series A round and you want a million dollars. And one of the questions on a very short list that the investor is thinking about or they're worried about is that it's not going to work and that you're going to come back to them in 12 months and ask them for more money. <laughs> it's a common fear that they have. And they have this sort of slightly ethical, you know, ethical dilemma of sorts in that they've got money already in it. If they don't save you, that investment is lost. But given that you failed in those 12 months, you're kind of likely to lose even more money. So that second conversation, if you, they do invest in you and the business doesn't work, for you to go have that conversation with them again is a really unpleasant one and one that they fear. So the use of funds slide, it's kind of saying, all right, so for this million bucks, here's what I'm going to go do. And what a lot of people think here is I'm going to build basically a budget and show you where I'm going to spend the money. You know, hire five people, uh, 20K a month in marketing, office space, things like that. Uh, what we think is a better way to approach it is to say, what milestones can I reach with this money? Hmm. And then show that you've asked specifically for that amount of money in order to reach those milestones and that those milestones are the condition to then pursue a different kind of financing, like your next round, or maybe you would be profitable or something at that point. So an important thing to say is, here we're asking for a million dollars. When you give us this million dollars, here is what we're going to run after. Uh, we're going to keep costs low, uh, inexpensive real estate. We're just scaling the team to six people. We've got some focused marketing tests. And we're trying to get to is a cost of acquisition of $100, and a lifetime value of the customer of $150. And we're trying, or for whatever, $400. And we're trying to, uh, when we get there, having secured at least 1,000 customers, we believe that we will be able to secure our Series A financing uh, based on those numbers because we will be really ready to take on more capital. So anyway, in there, we're showing a few things. Very clearly, what metrics we're running after with that use of money. Uh, number two, you're showing that you have a plan for when you're going to run out of money. Uh, and for the most part, companies that are raising their first round of financing do not plan to reach profitability. Uh, it would be almost silly to pretend that you're going to reach profitability on one round of financing. Usually these companies are taking multiple equity rounds of financing. So that is kind of the common misconception. I think about the use of funds slide. You want to make a case to them that you're not going to be back in 12 months. So it's more about milestones than it is a projected budget. That's a good, that's a really good um, insight. And just a quick note on the budget. We've heard some ideas, some some lines from um, venture capitalists that, you know, when you send them a complex Excel model or you know the financial model of the business, that for a startup it's actually more of an exercise in marketing than it is in financial planning, <laughs> because investors know that what you have said will not work or it will not play out like you say it's going to play out. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't create one at all. It just means that the nature of a startup is that what you set out to do is 
very rarely what actually happens. So it's important to build an Excel model, but that model is not your hard and fast contract of what's going to happen with the business because it most certainly won't play out that way. <laughs> so what made you pick the business model slide uh, as, the other, as the other of these 10? Yeah, business model slide. So we see a lot of people, especially if they are an MBA or you know, taking accounting classes or finance classes, uh, present something pretty complex uh, with projections of gross margin and how the margin grows and um, details that we think are way too granular and don't reflect your ability to understand the few metrics that matter most. Hmm. So um, for internet companies, it doesn't work for every company. Uh, we believe that, for example, the ratio of cost of acquisition being less than some multiple of the lifetime value of the customer are those two numbers are numbers that show that you understand what really drives the business. So instead of building out complex models of um, your sales team and compensation and engineering headcount, marketing spend, et cetera, if you can boil it down to, you know, literally one slide that has sort of those two uh, data points, acquisition cost and lifetime value of the customer, and to break those down into two. So cost of acquisition, you might be able to say our target is $100 cost of acquisition. You might say we anticipate this from three channels at these different price points. So you could break that down by channel. But broadly, we're trying to get to a CAC, as you could pronounce the acronym, of X dollars, $100. Then you say on the other side, the equation is the lifetime value of the customer, which is usually called LTV. And lifetime value of the customer is the... Um, revenues generated from the customer over the lifetime that you have the customer. So uh, you would begin with revenues minus costs. So they are giving us, you know, let's just say it's a e-commerce product company. That would be, let's say uh, the revenue is $500. Let's say the cost is $250. So that would be $250 in profit uh, times the uh number of transactions or number of months, if it's a subscription service, you would have that customer alive. And so that second data point is called the churn, which is about how frequently does your customer base turn over. So very rough math. Let's say uh, with that number again of the assuming a 50% margin, so you have, you sell a product for $500, you make $250 on each of those products. Um, let's say that the cost of acquisition is $500. So you acquire them for $500. If they do one transaction, you make $250. So that's like really bad news. Uh, and so the churn here would be able to say, how many times do we repeat that transaction? So at there, your break even would be if you repeat it uh, twice, I think. So 250 times two would be a break even. So that's still bad. And so generally, you like to see some multiple of lifetime value over the cost of acquisition. So in SaaS companies, that is often looked at as three. So you'd want to have lifetime value of three times what the cost of acquisition would be. And that is generally assumed to kind of uh, on average assumptions about the rest of the business would cover all your overhead costs. So for your business model slide, boil it down to the few metrics that matter most. Try not to get lost in the details. Evan, um, this book, did you have any idea when you wrote it that it was going to be so successful? I mean, it's, it's very new, but it's number one in its category on Amazon. Uh, I'm sure you've been busy talking about it a lot. Did you expect it to blow up like this? 
Well, I have learned that if your mom goes on the day one and buys all the copies on Amazon, <laughs> it's great for your sales. So, mom, thank you. Uh, we, we have learned that book sales, I mean, sad commentary, very few people buy books. So you don't have to sell a lot of books to become number one in a category. But we do feel great that it's in the category. And honestly, we think of it really as a testament to the willingness of you know, 75 founders who gave pretty extensive interviews with us. And then we have um, pretty much the full decks of 15 companies that raised at least a million dollars. In total, they raised $150 million. Those founders were, you know, very generous in their contribution of those, you know, sometimes confidential or private materials to the good of the community. So we're really thankful to them. I mean, we largely are just taking their learnings and their assets and uh, putting it in a book. So um, it's it's been a blast. I can say if you want to uh, become successful, do not write a book. Um, it does not make you any money. The lifetime value of a book is um, it might be negative. Well, that's what I was going to say is that you got to get a model because this is one of those books where you read it once and you kind of it's this like fire hose of stuff. It's really, really great. But it's one of those books that it's like a reference book, too. So every time you're building or uh, changing your deck, you get it out. You go, OK, let me go look at some of the tips for the you know business model slide. And so if you had a way to charge people a few cents every time they open your book a second time, you know, you'd be doing great. But <laughs> yeah, we didn't get there. Well, hey, let me just end on this. We have seen uh, we got a few uh, just a few emails that we've received have really made it all worthwhile. Uh, one I'll share is from a uh, mom of three young kids. She lives in North Carolina and she has just always had these ideas of little businesses that she wanted to start. And what she lacked, she didn't know anyone that owned a business. She didn't know anyone who had started a business. And she sent us an email that had a photo picture in it. And it was a picture of Get Backed with probably a hundred post-it notes as little tags <laughs> on pages of the book. And she said, you know, you've finally given me a way to organize my thoughts on the business. And she created a pitch deck and she had raised her first several thousand dollars to get this little business off and running. And we really believe that, you know, a great element of the American experience is the opportunity to create a business. And Americans, in particular, young Americans, millennials, are hungry to build businesses. And we are sad that there are people with great ideas that feel like they can't make it work because they don't know how to organize their thoughts and they don't know how to raise money. We think those are teachable skills and we want this material to get into the hands of as many people as possible so that more companies get created. It's a great thing when companies are built. It generates amazing goods and services for consumers, investment opportunities, creates equity value, creates jobs. And if we can play a little role in just a few more companies getting built, we will consider it a huge success. Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on the show. Check out Get Backed on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Appreciate it, man. Have a great day. Thanks, man.